Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. It feels so good to be back. We have a reunion of sorts. You may have heard recently that uh, Noel and I and our good friend Matt Frederick were on the road with our Stuff They Don't Want You to Know tour, but we have finally returned and we have not returned alone. We are joined once again with our fantastic super producer, Casey Pegram, who came all the way back from France to hang out with us on this show. Bonjour. <laughs> Casey on the case, folks. And my trusty co-host, Noel, is on the road this week uh, for a different project, which I can't say too much about now other than all will be revealed in time. And in the meantime, we decided that it would be fantastic to have one of our favorite How Stuff Works uh, celebrities come on the show this week. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome Christopher Hasiotis back to Ridiculous History. Ben, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, I feel like I should just be sitting here saying I'm Noel, but I'm, I'm not Noel. I'm not. Uh, I can grow my beard as much as I like, but I still can't match up to the man. But I'll do my best. He has he has spent a lot of time on that beard, Christopher. But you know what? Just since this is an audio podcast, I just want to describe you a little bit, if that's okay, while we're on air. I'm curious. Let's okay, do. okay. So, Christopher, you have a great beard. Well, thank you. And I think you've been... Uh, you know, you've been growing it out a little bit, I see. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've had it for a while. It's It's been on my face for decades. Uh, <laughs> if you want to start talking beards, the very first poem that I ever fully memorized was a, a poem about beards. Oh. Yeah. Do tell. Shel Silverstein. My beard grows to my toes. I never wears no clothes. I wraps my hair around my bear, and down the road I goes. 
Holy smokes. Yeah. Okay. I did not know. I did not know that we would be uh, we would be privileged to sit in on a little bit of a poetry recital. You tell me you didn't you didn't bring your oration today? Are you not ready to go? I have I have one that is completely unrelated to today's episode. Uh, and it's a little bit bawdy. It is a poem by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Ernest Hemingway, of course, famous famous writer, old man in the sea, the sun also rises. All these all these works of prose. Uh, he has a collected book of poetry, which is varied in terms of talent mm-hmm, and in, mm-hmm. in terms of quality. But he has one poem. It's very short that I, I suspect he wrote after a drunken night in Paris or Spain, where he says. I know monks masturbate at night and pet cats screw and some girls bite. And yet what can I do to set things right? That's the whole poem. It's a good poem to have in your back pocket. (laughs) It came in handy here. Sure did. Uh, But speaking of fantastic segues, we mentioned Paris just a second ago. Are you about to talk about a... uh Taking a Segway tour of Paris? <laughs> I think in a way we in a way we we are a Segway of the mind, Christopher. And I'm already embarrassed for you. <laughs> <laughs> we took uh we we talked a little bit off air about some interesting stories in the world of ridiculous history. And longtime listeners, you know that Christopher Hasiotis aside from having previously appeared on our show to introduce us to some very strange covers of Louie Louie, Christopher Hasiotis has been our longtime research associate. And we're we're big fans of you, uh, Christopher. You also always have the coolest stories. And off-air, you came to Casey and Noel and I with a pretty neat story about Paris, non-segue related. Absolutely. I thought, you know, Let's let's combine a lot of ridiculous history's interests. Let's let's take Casey's uh, Francophilia. Let's take <laughs> your love of um, con men. You know, people who who have these elaborate scams like Gregor McGregor and uh, and Noel, who is not with us in flesh but is in spirit here always. Uh, he's he's got a love for the. Uh, the, the man with with chutzpah with uh, <laughs> with um, you know that that go get him attitude right mm-hmm. so I thought we should dive into this story about Paris about the Eiffel Tower and about a specific con man who wraps all of these things up into one weird crazy unbelievable yet totally human and uh, ridiculous story. Are you talking about Victor Lustig? I am Victor Lustig. Born Robert V. Miller. Oh, there's already a plot twist. There is, yeah. So um, there's this man, Robert V. Miller. And so we're, we're going back to the turn of the most recent century, back to the 18 and 1900s. Victor Lustig is, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call him Count Victor Lustig, Count Lustig, because that's what he called himself. It's not the only thing he called himself, though. This is a man who had 22 different aliases. Wow. He was a criminal mastermind. He was a scam artist. He was a swindler. He was a grifter. He was born Robert V. Miller in uh, a little town called Hostenay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is at the time of his birth, 1890, that was in the country of Austro-Hungary. Uh, now it's the Czech Republic. So the town is sort of near the border of the Czech Republic and, and Poland. Mm. And this was uh, 1890? 1890 is when Robert V. Miller was born. So 
He is born, I believe, January 4th. His real name is Robert. I was not aware uh, that he would accrue so many AKAs. But we know that from a young age, he was both highly intelligent and a troublemaker. That's true. So Miller, uh, as he was known at the time, when he was 19 years old, not too much is known about his life beforehand, but when he's uh, in his late teens, he moves to Paris. He gets involved in gambling. He's kind of a roustabout, gets involved in the seedy underbelly of the world, uh, which, you know, is one of the charms of Paris, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, he gets scarred by a lover's boyfriend at the age of 19. Gets cut across the face with a knife. He's sleeping with someone who's sleeping with someone and this and that. So he's already got this sort of uh, disreputable air about him. Mm-hmm. Things are tough for uh, for young Miller, right? So he decides he needs to make some money. And we're not getting to his biggest scam just yet, but I, I want to lay the groundwork for some of his his history of just taking advantage of people for his own benefit. All right. So Robert Miller's looking to make a name for himself or maybe make 22 names for himself <laughs> or keep his name off the books altogether. But basically, he's been in the, in trouble with uh, the authorities in a bunch of different countries for scamming people, robberies, uh, swindles, this sort of thing. So his first big attempt at a, at, at a big plot involves ocean liners. He hops on an ocean liner that's going from the Atlantic ports in France to New York and back. And so basically he rides back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between France and New York pretending to be a Broadway producer. <laughs> what? Yeah, and this this is when he's only uh, – he's, he's still in his teens or 20s. So we're talking right around uh, the time right before World War I. So he's on board literally saying, I'm, I'm a, a Broadway producer. I have all this money, I, but I need more to put on a great big show. And that's when he first adopts the name Victor Lustig. Victor Lustig gives him the sense of grandeur, uh, so much so that he starts calling himself Count Victor Lustig. Wow. And he meets all these other, well, they're not other rich people. They're the rich people. He's the person trying to get their money. He mm. meets these people on board the ship, says, I'm putting together a Broadway show. It's going to be the best. It's going to be the most beautiful. It's going to be the most fantastic Broadway show ever put on, but I need some investors. So are you on board? Will you give me some money? And basically, he he just sells them this whole fantasy, and he gets all this money and uh, goes back and forth and back and forth and scams people out of out of money for a show that doesn't exist. Uh, it's It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you know, this film, uh, The Producers by Mel Brooks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, 1966, 67, I think, about – Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel pretend to be producers of a Broadway show to raise money. They basically figure out if you put on a failure of a show, you'll make more money if, if the whole thing loses. Uh, I, I don't know that Mel Brooks was inspired by the story of Victor Lustig, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. And we should also mention one of the big questions about this early scam. How did he manage to do this successfully multiple times without getting caught? I advanced to you that his fluency in multiple languages helped because I'm sure that sometimes the people he was conning were entirely French speakers. And then sometimes they might have been entirely German speakers. Yeah, and Lustig spoke five languages at least that we know of. So the ability to switch back and forth between languages with fluency, it, it puts forth this idea of, of confidence, of power, of authority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you can, if you can take on a cute accent maybe, uh, <laughs> that can sometimes inspire feelings of, 
of warmth, depending on who you're talking to. So, yeah, as he's going back and forth across the Atlantic, he's talking to all these people, just scamming them left and right in various languages. But this didn't go on forever, correct? Because you said you said he was active at this time uh, directly before World War One. Right. So the the First World War kind of interrupts a lot of this transatlantic rigmarole. And he go. finds himself in trouble in the U.S. and comes back to France on a more permanent basis in 1925. And that's when we arrive at the main topic of our story today. And um, I, think it's, I think it's a good one. It's weird. It's the sort of thing you would think could never happen today because mm-hmm. of the prevalence of information the willingness of people to believe, the skepticism. But I, I don't know. I, I think what this shows, and, and we're about to get to it, mm-hmm. but it shows that people are always willing to believe what will benefit them. Yes, yes. I do want to do one brief sidetrack while we're on the way to France. Let's do it. Okay. So Lustig also had some American adventures during Prohibition he went to Missouri. That's right. Yeah, he, he went to Missouri, and he used another alias, Robert Duvall. I like it. <laughs> and he, he, used, uh, he used this alias to try to run a ranch. So essentially, he offered this bank $22,000 in Liberty Bonds and convinced them to exchange an additional $10,000 of the bonds for cash. They said, yes, the money's placed in two identical envelopes, and he uses some, like, stage magic, some sleight of hand to switch the envelopes, make off of the bonds and the cash. He gets arrested in Kansas City, but he manages to talk his way out of the indictment. And that's the thing I find so 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 crazy. I mean, it's the sort of thing you think you would never be able to talk to a bank and walk away with both the notes and the cash and everything. And then talk your way out of yeah, court? Yeah, it's crazy. It's, how, how endearing do you have to be? It's like some sort of crazy huge version of the, uh, you know, the, the $20 change scam where you, <laughs> I won't go into the details, but you can go up to a cashier and you start uh, quick talking and asking them to make change for one thing after you have a legitimate uh, transaction, mm-hmm. then you get some change, and you change some ones for a 10, and then you switch things around a little bit, and all of a sudden, you've doubled your money, and you also got whatever you bought. And here in Atlanta, just a side note, folks, uh, we do refer to that as the Hasiotis. Do we? We do now. <laughs> I'm sorry that you had to learn about that on air. <laughs> but that's that. the American adventure is primarily important because it shows how well he was able to handle getting caught. Mm-hmm. Because almost anybody else would have gone to jail. That is bank robbery and it is fraud. But Victor has at this point accumulated quite a range of skills, quite a range of aliases. And as you said, Christopher, in May of 1925, he goes back to Paris. He's had a close call in Kansas City. He thinks, you know, maybe things are getting a little too hot on this side of the Atlantic. So, so what happens when he returns to France? Well, let me ask you, when, when you think of Paris, what do you think of? When I think of Paris, well, this is, this is a weird story. I don't know if I ever told you I was homeless in Paris for a week. <laughs> Who wasn't? Who wasn't? Right? <laughs> Who wasn't, yeah. At least in their hearts. So, I, yeah, I think of uh, wonderful music. I think of street-side cafes. Uh, I think of, obviously, I think of you, Casey, and I think of the Eiffel Tower. I think that's one of the number one 
things that people think of when they think of Paris, right? Yeah, who doesn't? And and uh, you are not unlike Victor Lustig, at least in this one way, because he thought of the Eiffel Tower as well. You want to go back into a little bit of Eiffel Tower history for uh, for people who may not be familiar with it? I think that's a great idea, man. Okay, so we all know what the Eiffel Tower looks like. It's a huge iron lattice tower. Mm-hmm. But how did it get there? Yeah, I mean, so basically the Eiffel Tower was constructed over a four- or five-year period in the late 1880s. It was put in place for the 1889 World's Fair. Uh, it was never meant to be permanent. It was meant to just go up for 20 years, kind of act as this big attraction, and then come down. But Parisians loved it so much, and other people coming to Paris loved it so much, there was an argument made that it should stand as an icon for the city. It was also used as a relay tower for telegraphs, so it kind of came in handy, too. Mm, okay. But that that sense of impermanence around the tower actually plays into why Victor Lustig thought of the Eiffel Tower and how it became involved in his next scam. Oh, that's right, because he was, I believe, when he arrived in France, he was reading a newspaper about how the Eiffel Tower was in poor condition, and it needed some repairs, and not everyone loved it. It, it, Some people in the city saw it as, I I think the quote I read was, an expensive nuisance. Yeah, exactly. You can go either way, you know. I mean, the thing about the Eiffel Tower is it completely dominates the landscape. It stands out from all the architecture in Paris, it's almost 80 stories tall, or the equivalent of 80 stories. It's like 320-something meters. It's almost 1,000 feet tall, if if not higher. And most of the buildings around there are, you know, three, four stories tall at the max, Mm -hmm. Um, not, not ironwork. So some people say it's an eyesore. Some people say it's magnificent. Oh. Either way, by 1925, when he returns to Paris, with, I should add, I uh, looked up the exact number, he already had 40 arrests under his belt by this wow. time. Uh, 1925, so he was 35 years old. So more than one arrest for a year of his life, and that's like two or three arrests for every year of his adult life. That That is a baffling statistic. Thank you for for putting it so succinctly. I guess he wasn't that great then if he was continually getting arrested. But uh, I I have a proposition for you, Christopher. I propose that uh, we call in one of our favorite segments to learn a little bit about France. Let's do it. All right. Hey, Casey. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Doing, doing pretty well. As we said at the top, you have returned from your double life in <laughs> France. Yeah. And... We wanted to ask you a little bit about how French people see the Eiffel Tower today. Mm, that's an interesting topic. You know, it is it is very touristy. It is very much like even even me having been there, I think, eight times in as many years. Um, this past trip where I was there for two weeks, I did not go visit the Eiffel Tower. I didn't hang out on the Champ de Mars. I didn't, you know, go to the Trocadero. I, I didn't really have much uh, involvement with the Eiffel Tower in general, other than I could see it from the balcony of my Airbnb. So, you know, as you guys were mentioning, the the height of the buildings in Paris is something that is kind of strictly regulated, and it does ensure that the architecture remains fairly uniform, that uh, certain buildings like the Eiffel Tower or like the Tour Montparnasse or like the Arc de Triomphe, uh, etc., remain visible through large parts of the city. And it's kind of, you know, you're, you're always catching glimpses of the Eiffel Tower just throughout your day, which is really, really nice. And Casey, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, that's partially due to preference and tradition, but also 
the just the simple geography and makeup of the land in Paris itself. Like you've got these big sort of modern-looking business towers over in La Défense, but yes. everything else, you know, the French have not had this tradition of tearing down old buildings, and it's located on somewhat wet ground near the Seine River, so you can't build 60-story skyscrapers. Yeah, which, you know, is a is a very happy accident, I think, because Paris does have a very consistent architectural style, uh, although it has been transformed quite a bit within the last maybe couple hundred years, um, Hausmann in the 19th century demolished a lot of the old Paris and created a lot of the grand boulevards that we know today, which were useful for instance, uh, moving large numbers of troops in and out of the city, that kind of thing. But he had, he had a very, very strict requirement in terms of keeping the style very consistent, keeping things very close to the curb always having shops on like the ground floor and then living space in the floors above that that gives the city a very coherent, cohesive feel, as well as buildings not terminating in a sharp corner, mm-hmm. but instead kind of in a flat, outward-facing corner that essentially keeps the buildings, again, feeling more open and inviting and just keeping the street life very vibrant and alive. I have a question for you, Casey. Okay. What, what do you have an alias when you're in France? <laughs> no, um, it, other than Kaze, you know, that that would be it. It's just kind of the Frenchified Me, Monsieur Kaze, Monsieur yeah. Kaze, ah. Monsieur, Monsieur Kaze. Yeah, all right. Well, that has been Kaze on the case, Kaze sur le cas, histoire du cul. Yeah, perfect, perfect. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it so uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So this gives us a sense of just how iconic the building is today and back in Lustig's time, right? Right, and we're we're talking, you know, 1925-ish. Um, we're back in the 7th arrondissement. And again, this, this structure was meant to last about 20 years. So it was built in 1889. The plan was initially, let's take it down around 1919 uh, or so. Oh, no, mm -hmm. 1909. Mm. Yeah. So it's already almost doubled its lifetime. And it's getting expensive. The city is complaining, saying we don't have the money for the upkeep. It's just really a pain in the French butt. <laughs> and this, this is where Lustig sees an opportunity. And he says, you know what? I bet that I could just forge some credentials and appoint myself to a position in the local government. Yeah, well, he actually hires a forger. I mean, this is – it's. The thing about Lustig is he always thought out his scams to the nth degree. This wasn't just some sort of fly-by-night operation. Mm -hmm. right? He hires a forger. He comes up with these credentials. And he presents himself as uh, the deputy director general of uh, this or that. I think it's something like the Postal Service. Or yeah, the, the Ministry of Post and Telegraphs. Exactly. So he takes advantage of the news that the city is unhappy with the structure. Mm -hmm. The Eiffel Tower itself weighs more than 10,000 tons. He approaches scrap metal dealers in Paris, the five most uh, prestigious, the five with the biggest operation. And he says, Mr. Scrap Metal Dealer, my name is Victor Lustig. I'm the deputy director general. We want to sell you the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> 
We want to scrap the Eiffel Tower. We want to sell you 7,000 tons of it. However, let's meet at this hotel in secret because we can't let word get out about this. So Lustig invites five different representatives of uh, scrap metal dealerships to this hotel and asks them to bid, to fight amongst themselves, to offer the most money for 7,000 tons of metal, claiming that the Eiffel Tower is going to be scrapped. And how, how did it work out? <laughs> well, for whom, Ben? For whom? <laughs> it worked out really well for Victor Lustig. So he's got these five guys in the hotel. He says, all right, guys, you've got to keep this deal quiet because the government doesn't want word to get out. So I want you to think about it, see what you can do with the 7,000 tons of scrap metal, and come back to me with an offer. But before the meeting was over, he had identified who he wanted to award the bid to. His mark. Exactly. It was a guy named André Poisson. And Lustig identified Poisson as kind of an up-and-comer. He was one of the least successful of the group. And he had low self-esteem. Exactly. Yeah. So Lustig thought this guy is going to be really desperate to secure this bid. He thought Poisson would really want to make a name for himself with this deal and mm-hmm. secure his place in the business world because he felt intimidated by all these other scrap metal dealers. Who are relatively well established. There's This is where we see some of the art of the con or the craft of psychological manipulation come into play because I believe what happens is after that meeting with the five people where he's buttering them up and he where he identifies Andre as his mark, he meets with Andre the next day and Andre says, you know, I slept on it. I'm having a, a couple of doubts. I don't know if this is the best thing because this is a huge project. This is a lot of money. And Lustig gives him a very compelling, empathy-building, absolutely fake story about, you know, hey, just between you and me, like, I get it. You're an up-and-comer. I'm a government employee. I don't get paid that much. Times are tough all around. And I really, you know, Andre, you get it. You and I are kind of similar. So how about this? I will guarantee you the contract just between us. Forget about those other four guys. If you can give me just a little, you know, give me a vig. Give me a little bit of uh, Something on the side. Mm -hmm. Grease the wheels of of bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Lustig is genius in adding layer upon layer of this scam. He builds confidence not just by putting forth this story, but by roping Andre Poisson in on that the, they're in this together. You mm-hmm. know, so, and it goes through. It goes through. So not only does Andre Poisson give Lustig the money for, for the Eiffel Tower, he also bribes him to do it. Right, yeah. So he's, he's, he's paying the bribe plus the deal, the price that they agree on. And what happens next? So then Lustig says, I've got all this money, and I'm splitting town. He goes back to Austria, and uh, he just hangs out. He takes up with some, someone else. Uh, the details on this are a little sketchy. I couldn't really find out um, in my research who it was, but reports said that he swindled someone else to let him stay with them. Mm-hmm. And while he's hanging out in Austria with all this money, he keeps his eye on the French newspapers just to see if he's been discovered. <laughs> <laughs> because he's betting on the fact that uh, that Andre would be so ashamed that he wouldn't report the theft. Right, right. And we do know a little bit of what happens to the unfortunate Andre here. Uh, after Lustig skips town, Andre, who is out a significant sum of money, uh, goes to the government officials to follow up on the deal, at which point they say, what? Who are you talking about? 
you know, maybe they were empathetic and said, I'm very sorry this happened to you, but can you imagine the, just the utter shame and embarrassment there? That's that's what Victor was. He played this guy like a cello, you know? Yeah, and that's when, it, like, shame is such a powerful, powerful emotion mm-hmm. when you're trying to get someone else to do what you want. Yes, and <laughs> So I've heard, I've heard, I've I don't heard. know, yeah, from, from reports. <laughs> oh, you're a dangerous man. What's your real name? After, you know, during this episode, I am now suspecting everybody of having a different alias. At least one or two, right? I have a couple. I have a couple. Yeah. I had to retire one. I had to retire Chris from Boston mm-hmm. uh, because one day in Atlanta, someone who knew me as Chris from Boston found me. Uh. And luckily, I was with some good friends of mine who helped me out and backed me up when I went back to the table at the restaurant we were at. And I was like, guys, look, there might be someone here who thinks my name is Chris. So let's just go along with that. And if you do, the next round of drinks is on me. So it's a if good deal. You, so if you're listening to this, I'm I uh, I hope you're having <laughs> I hope you're having a great time. Chris from Boston never did any uh shady criminal acts, though. Chris from Boston is not a con man. It's just not in his character. But Lustig is an inveterate con man, an irredeemable con artist, and he clearly doesn't feel too broken up about causing such a financial disaster. No, 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 not at all. He doesn't feel broken up. He feels emboldened. In fact, the man who sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal goes back to France, goes right back to Paris, and sells it a second time. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is crazy. <laughs> the same thing. He goes and does it again. Uh, I will say this time, not quite so successfully. Right. Because he he was correct in his gamble, in his original assumption that the story would not be widely reported. And if the news had made it to the papers, we can say that he would not have attempted this a second time. I don't think so. I mean, the guy's clever. He's... He may have been arrested 40 times, but he's also gotten away at least that many. Right. So he he doesn't even wait that long, you know. He he just, I guess, waits until he runs out of cash. Yeah, and just needs some more and says, well, let me go sell the Eiffel Tower again. Uh, but he, so he goes back to Paris. He gets five more guys together, pitches them the idea, says, I, you want to buy this? See this big hunk of junk over here? Uh, you want to you buy it? Because you need the scrap metal. Uh, this time, however, there's someone who's suspicious of of the deal, and they go to the the police right away, and um, and Victor Lustig does not succeed, but he does succeed in in skipping town once again. Yes, and this time he goes to the United States. He goes back. I guess the heat from Kansas City is dissipated. Well, <laughs> the U.S. is a big place, right? You uh-huh. know, there's a lot of places you can go. The a myth of the American West and other parts of America is that you can reinvent yourself, especially in this pre-internet, pre-telephone day. Mm-hmm. You can just present yourself as someone new. You can present yourself as someone successful, as a count, as a what, as a salesman of mystery boxes. Ah, uh, yes, Romanian boxes. Romanian boxes. Yeah, after the um, you know relative success the first time around of the sale of the Eiffel Tower and the lack of success the second time, Lustig goes to the U.S. and he finds himself in Texas. He sells something called a Romanian box. R-U-M-A-N-I-A-N. I I sure am. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So, uh, (laughs) 
Yeah, so so what is a Romanian box? I'm so glad you asked, Christopher. Essentially, it is a money box. That's how he would present it. The Count, because he's Count Lustig again, would wine and dine and befriend Americans. And then when people would say, hey, you know, you're an interesting guy. What What is it that you do, Count? What What's your line of work? What's your line of business? And essentially, in a polite way, they were trying to ask, how are you so wealthy? And then, with the utmost secrecy, with a just-between-us-and-the-lamppost kind of confidence, the Count would pull out this box. It's a literal box, and it's a money box that looks fantastic. It's built out of mahogany. It's about the size of a steamer trunk. And he would say, let me show you how this works. And the Mark would hand him uh, a bill, usually asked for a $100 bill, and then he would put the bill into the machine, wait a few hours for quote-unquote chemical processing, and then when the people came back, they went and got dinner or lunch or something, two bills would be there, two $100 bills. And so Lustig would say that this box pays for itself. What it really is is a fake uh, contraption. It's, yeah, there's yeah. there's no way you can have a, a – it's basically – a, a counterfeit counterfeiting machine, right? So <laughs> yes, he's yeah. telling people, I have this thing that can make m- fake money for you that can duplicate your dollar, double your money in six hours or less, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even work. It's a scam of a scam. It's a scam. It's a double a scam. scam. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of cons work that way because they prey on um, ambition, greed, insecurity. You know what I mean? Well, and that's the sort of thing. So even if he were caught, even if someone confronted him and said, hey, man – this money box you sold me doesn't work as, as, you, <laughs> as you said it would, they're not going to go to the police because then they would be a- admitting to attempting to counterfeit. Yeah, and here's, here's the thing. This is the beautiful part of this. Uh, Lustig's friends will see this and they'll say, oh, man, they're convinced, you know, because he's been so reluctant and secretive about it. Uh, they say, will you sell this to me? You name your price, anything. And... The count is very reluctant. It's been in my family for a while. It's, I don't know. I mean, I like you, but this is a big decision for me. And then after cajoling and raising the price sky high, Lustig would eventually agree to sell it, sometimes for up to $30,000. You can read a pretty good description of some of these adventures in various articles in the Smithsonian. Who They seem to have a fascination with Lustig. But... After he sold it, here's the thing. He didn't skip town right away. They did some more demonstrations so he could show them how it worked. There were still bills hidden in the machine, obviously. Yeah, well, there are a variety of bills hidden in the machine. And so Lustig, again, it's it's his mastery of manipulation. There were different kinds of money hidden in the machine. And he would use his power of persuasion to convince the person giving him the money to give him the right kind of money that he could then slip out a duplicate of. Mm-hmm. But the last time that Lustig sells a Romanian mystery box, uh, it's not even called a mystery. I'm just calling it a mystery box. (laughs) The the Romanian box. It's in Texas, and his purchaser is a sheriff. Right. And the sheriff does not take being built. No, he's out thousands of dollars. So Mm -hmm. in the past, Lustig had scammed people, left town, and uh, was generally kind of off scot-free. Indiana, Nebraska, Texas, Chicago. But the sheriff 
follows Lustig across the country. He tracks him down finally in, I, I believe, in Chicago. And again, this is, it's about to be Lustig gets away with it one more time because the sheriff confronts Lustig. He says, man, you ripped me off. This thing is a hoax. It does not make money. I need my tens of thousands of dollars back or I don't know what I'm going to do. To which Lustig replies, oh, that's so terrible that that happened. Are you sure you were working the box correctly? <laughs> oh, man. And it works. <laughs> he he convinces the sheriff that the sheriff was the one not operating the contraption properly. He even, as a show of good faith, gives him some of the money back to say, hey, look, I promise I'm not scamming you. Here, take a, take a portion of the money back as good faith. Go back to Texas. Take the box with you. Figure out how to work it on your own. You must be the one making a mistake. And he continues because, look, in addition to always getting away with things, Lustig never learns his lesson, and he starts messing with some very dangerous characters sometime before 1930. This is a speculative story, an alleged story. We don't, we don't have a lot of primary sources on this, but sometime before 1930, the story is that he even attempted to pull a scam on Al Capone. In Chicago. Did yeah, you hear about this? I, I did. And it's, it's uh, so he had been in Chicago for a while. He'd kind of built up his name. He was getting into the deep counterfeiting business. So not just this sort of uh, confidence scam, but legitimate counterfeiting of cash. And uh, so he's kind of operating in the same circles as Capone. He knows of Capone. Capone doesn't quite know of him. But Lustig wants to gain his confidence. Right. So the story is this. Lustig convinced – and he's still the count – Lustig. Do you think he's talking with an accent? Of course. He has to, man. You think so? It would be such a missed opportunity. If you are going to put uh, a fake aristocratic title in front of your name, then you you must have an accent. Yeah, that's true. Because that's if he wants wants to appear to be um, a wealthy, mysterious European of noble blood, then he has to conform to the American stereotype of that, which requires an accent. I think probably if you put on that that accent, then you you give yourself the benefit of pretending there are things you don't understand, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you don't quite understand the intricacies of American English. So maybe if someone thinks you insulted them, you could just say, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's, yeah. I um, not understand. Is uh, how you say uh, a scam. Exactly. <laughs> Look, we are choosing to imagine that he has an accent and uh, – I'd like to I'd like to hear everyone's guess as to what sort of accent he had. I thought yours was really good, Christopher. Uh, also, you have traveled the world and heard many accents, so I, I will defer to your speculation here. Anyway, point being, Lustig goes to Capone. The Count goes to Capone and convinces him that if Al Capone gives him fifty thousand dollars. He will double the money for Capone in 60 days with his newest adventure, his newest discovery. And he knew that Capone was a very, very dangerous man. So once he got the money, he just let it sit in the bank. He didn't touch it. He let it sit in the bank for 59 days. On the 59th day, he comes back to Al Capone himself and says, look, Mr. Capone, the deal fell through. I'm very sorry, but I feel so bad about this because I made you a sincere promise, and I feel so bad about this, that I will repay the money yeah, that and I the, lost. Yeah, and that's not the only thing he says to Capone, right? Again, this is, it's about 
gaining confidence. It's about bringing people over to your side. So not only is he involving Capone from the get-go in this complicity in, in the scam that he was planning to do, the thing is that there was never a scam planned. Right. Lustig just wanted to get Capone on his side. So he says, hey, give me 50 grand, which 50 grand is a lot of money today. Back then, way more money. Ah, yes. We have our handy-dandy inflation calculator. Around that period of time, $50,000 in today's money would be equal to around $940,000. That's amazing. Can you imagine going to someone and saying, hey— if you could just let me borrow a million dollars. For like two months. Just two months. Just two months. <laughs> I will give you – let me double your money. And uh, and Capone, I don't know why if it was this guy's uh, his, his wherewithal, but but he said, yeah. But Lustig did nothing with it, and he, he planned to do nothing with it. Mm-hmm. So he went back. He said, I'm really sorry. It didn't work out, but here's your money back, all of it. Because I, I lost everything. I will pay you back out of my own pocket. Yeah, I, I don't have – I've lost – my clothes, I've lost my house, but I'm an honest guy. Yeah, and this works like a charm. According to the story, Capone is so impressed. He's like, hey, this guy's got a, he's got some integrity. You know what I mean? I like a, a, you know, he's got a little bit of spine. He's got a heart of gold. Tell you what, you don't, you don't have to pay me back all the money. You, you seem like an honest fellow. And because Capone is so built, he only accepts a certain amount. He doesn't accept the full 50 grand back, right? Mm -hmm. It's like he, the reports vary, but we know that Capone left him with some extra cash. At least $5,000. Right. So that's the whole scam. So Lustig borrowed almost in today's money a million dollars from Al Capone, did nothing with it, gave it back to pretend to be honest, gained his confidence, gained his trust, gained a reputation as a good guy in Al Capone's eyes, and then also got Almost $100,000. Just just for hanging out, which is, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's effective. But I think this sort of success leads to Lustig's ultimate downfall. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonneville. 
right? It's- oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, I think some criminals have the idea that they'll get to a certain point and then they're they're out. You know, they quit mm-hmm. the life. One last con. Yeah, right? for Lustig – the the con was the life. There was no end to this. And so he was actually pursued. At this point, you know, he's deep in the counterfeiting game, like we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. He's being pursued by a, uh, a Secret Service agent, Peter Rubino. And uh, this is back when the Secret – you know, today, I think a lot of people think of the Secret Service in its most prominent role in the public eye now is protecting the life of the president of the United States mm-hmm. and all, you know, the uh, the people around that office. But its origins are in fighting counterfeiting. Yeah, absolutely. Its origins are in fighting counterfeiting. And the problem is that Lustig was just becoming too prominent. He teamed up with a Nebraska chemist, a guy named Tom Shaw, and they created like a soup-to-nuts counterfeiting operation. Plates, paper, ink, everything. Yeah, they were they were so good that the the Secret Service – identified them as the best counterfeiters in the country. That They called these bills that they were turning out the Shaw-Lustig notes. Yeah, yeah. And this Lustig money was showing up everywhere from New Orleans to Chicago. And there's a question about whether the Secret Service would have actually caught him because he was aware. It, it was like in today's money, it's it was like $1.4 million of fake cash in, in the country. So it was altering to a degree the economy. Yeah, there, there was a fear that it would imbalance world <laughs> world faith in the American dollar because there was so much fake U.S. money out there. Right, right. And 
he would have, this is our Scooby-Doo moment, he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for his girlfriend. Well, yeah, it goes back, right? Like, this, that's how this thing started. So he got he got cut across the face when he was a teenager because he was uh, having a romance with someone else's romance. And, mm-hmm. you know, now we're, now we're in the 30s and the same thing happened again, right? Because he was having an affair with his friend's mistress. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. Right. So he, so he had a lady friend who was not an official uh, wife or anything mm-hmm. like that. And then his friend who was married had a, a romantic in, entanglement on the side that Lustig was then involved with that woman. And then the woman he was seeing got mad and called the cops. Yeah. It turned him in. And so with her assistance, the Secret Service is able to – catch Lustig in in a pretty anticlimactic way. I think he's just walking down Broadway on the Upper West Side in New York, and the Secret Service comes up and apprehends him. And even they can't help but admire him a little bit. One Secret Service agent is observing the fact that Lustig is cool as a cucumber. He's dressed very nicely, dressed to the nines. He has a suitcase of very nice clothes, and the Secret Service guy has to kind of just reluctantly shake his head and go, you're the smoothest con <laughs> man that ever lived. To which Lustig was probably like a, a, a self-deprecating shrug and a thank you because that's how he talked to people. Oh, do, well, you, do you want to do his commandments? Yeah, well, the, I, yeah. I thought this would be the perfect time. Yeah. Before we get to, to Lustig's final fate, mm-hmm. you know, because you did bring this up. Um, okay, spoiler alert, Lustig goes to prison <laughs> at some point in his life, right? <laughs> right. But while in prison for his most ultimate stint, he decides to write the the ten rules of a of a good con, right? His mm-hmm. ten commandments, and um, yeah, and they re- they refer to just what you said that he was the the coolest cucumber out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to go through them? Yeah, let's do it. So, the set of instructions known as the ten commandments for con men, and and for those of you out there listening, these are uh, not legal advice. The, yes, this is not legal <laughs> advice from Casey Christopher Nolan myself. These are observations. But, uh, you know, I think they're pretty good. Why don't we just, why don't we round robin and we'll alternate? How about that? Yeah, and let me know if you, uh, let me know if you agree with these. Yeah, yeah. First, be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets the con man his coups. You know, if, if you listen, you let the other person open up to you. There's that innate sense of, of connection between two people and, uh, and that you immediately form this bond. And all you have to do is listen, be compassionate, nod your head. Look him in the eye. I think it works. Mm-hmm. Number two, never look bored. Which is huge. And this is this is from um, the time before everybody had a smartphone sitting around. You know, the idea is to be actively engaged with people. That means the eye contact. That probably means a little bit of mirroring their physicality, right? And you would be you'd be surprised how much it works. I agree with that one. the The third one is <laughs> the third one is wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions and then agree with them. <laughs> it's great. I like it. <laughs> which is which is kind of a spycraft thing too. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of politics. Uh, it's gone back and forth, and this episode is appearing in your uh, your subscription feed on election day here in the United States for the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe you've recognize this in your personal life or if you go out and you you talk to someone if you find that politically you guys kind of jibe there's that again it's an immediate connection 
Exactly, exactly. And then he has another observation about how to react to people's opinions. Yeah, let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same views. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've done this on dates. I I mean, this is what, like it's it's your yes-anding and improv, right? You're just building off the other person. You build a story together, and then you're in that existence together. And here's, this one I think is a little bit more of a gambit, this next one. It is, hint at sex talk, speaking of dates, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Well, yeah, again, I think it's the sort of thing where you can talk around an issue and you take your cues from the other person. So you bring up, uh, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, last weekend I was in Cleveland and let me tell you, the girls there are something else. (laughs) And then if the other person seems intrigued, you know uh, kind of what wavelength they're on. If they seem a little like, eh, that's not really the kind of thing I talk about, then you might follow up with, and I'm glad I didn't go out with them because, boy, that is not my scene. <laughs> you know? <It's, laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, you're building that rapport. I just feel like that takes a another level of skill mm-hmm. to find the right hint because all of these are about attempting to create rapport or the and, feeling and we that. should say i mean this is where the 20s the 30s pretty much he's only dealing with men right that's so this true. is this that's is there's true. that kind of like boys room locker room talk Ugh. uh sort of sort of a atmosphere mm-hmm. right how are you going to build confidence with other people who you want to scam and the next five commandments are things that lustig believes you should never do correct number six never discuss illness Unless some special concern is shown. So, what do you what do you think that means? Uh, I think I think it's probably a time when uh, private lives are a little more private. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a sense that um, you know, it, illness is a it was a much more mysterious thing eighty years ago. Uh, could show weakness, perhaps. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Because at this time, you know, disabilities were still largely vilified, mm-hmm. and an illness could make you undesirable. It might be contagious. As you said, it might make you weak. Uh, he also said, to your point about private lives, never pry into a person's personal circumstances, parentheses, they'll tell you all eventually. Yeah, again, it's it's letting your mark open up to you, right? Following the lead. Um, and after that, again, number eight, never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. This is crucial. Most of the time, if you see someone who has great influence or power or importance, they're not going around spouting their accolades. They yeah, don't have it, to. It's, that's the difference between, uh, you know, old money and new money, right? <laughs> yes, that's what people say, right? Uh, old money will be much more subtle, right? And new money is like, what else can we put gold on? Mm-hmm. So this this one, I think, never boasting I think this remains incredibly important today, not just in cons. He has another one, never be untidy. Look yeah, good. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you, you want to be respectable. You mm. want to gain people's trust. Look look nice. Finally, I'm going to give listeners a chance to think about what you think the last, the, the last <laughs> commandment might be. What you should do, what you shouldn't do. Are you thinking? Are you thinking? Casey, can we get a little bit of thinking music? Number 10 is never get drunk. Never get drunk. That's it. Never get drunk. And it makes sense because 
you will not be in full control of your faculties. You need to be 100% engaged with the people you are trying to swindle. Yeah, I, I would probably guess, though, that there's a subset to that rule. Maybe it's a, in one of the appendices or something. But never get drunk, but try to get the other person drunk, maybe? Right, you know, right. Like ply them with a couple of mm-hmm. vodkas and drink water on your own? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or have a have a cocktail that is always just like halfway empty, halfway yeah, yeah. full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think those are those are pretty good, and yeah. it's surprising how simplistic they are. I, I would argue that a lot of these rules aren't just applicable to trying <laughs> to scam people. They're pretty good in most things in life. Some yeah. of them, some of them. Well, I think be a patient listener, be engaged, and uh, avoiding being messy and drunk, I think those four at least are just great <laughs> advice. Well, I mean, so these, these are all great things to, uh, you know, if you want to comport yourself as an empathetic, normal mm-hmm. human being. And if your goal is to make connections with other people, they're great. If your goal is to take advantage of people, get their money and do whatever you want with it, I guess they're also great too. And just blindly agreeing with someone's opinions about things that are very important to them. I it, totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> no. I do. No, I, I agree with you. On everything, Ben. I agree with you on everything, Christopher. But despite our, I guess, reluctant admiration of Lustig's techniques, not everybody agreed with his methods, and law enforcement continued to hunt him. Now, after he was arrested by the Secret Service, he did manage to escape prison for a moment. Uh, I think not through some clever scheme. I think he just literally used bed sheets, right? <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Yeah, so uh, Lustig was arrested. He was all set to go to trial. The day before his trial, he faked an illness. And so uh, I think he got a few extra liberties he might not otherwise have. He was put in a less secure location. And I, I love that. It. It, I don't want to be the person who admires the criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be the guy who lifts up the person who's taking the money of everyone else. But this is pretty amazing. <laughs> you got to say, Lustig, the night before his trial, he takes a bed sheet. He ties it around the window. He breaks through the bars somehow. He gets out. As he's hanging from the side of the prison, you know, and the, the prison is in the city, there are some passersby who look up at him. And he takes out a rag from his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and he pretends to be washing the windows. That's I mean, that's so not only does he have this great planning, but he's got great improvisational skills yeah, too. Yeah, it, it would be great to do improv with this guy. Yeah, and uh, so he pretends to be washing windows so people don't report him. He leaps down from his bed sheet, lands in front of some onlookers and passersby, bows, and then runs away into the night. Yes, and gets away for one month. He is captured in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's not able to talk his way out of these these charges. He eventually pleads guilty to some of the many things he is being hounded for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he ends up all the way on the other side of the country. He's in uh, in Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. That's where his final days are. Well, no, it, not his final days. So he ends up in Alcatraz. He's there for a stretch of time, like twenty years, I think. Yeah, and then he's transferred to another prison. I believe it was in Missouri. I could be wrong about that. And uh, and that's where he dies. He just dies of illness. Again, it's a sort of anticlimactic end for an exciting life full of uh, adventure and scam. But, uh, I mean, but that's that's how life is, right? <laughs> it doesn't always tie up neatly in a bow. It's not a three-act play. You know, you, you die in prison. 
uh, on his death certificate. Do you know what it said his career was? I do, I do. It listed his occupation as apprentice salesman. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so he, yeah, he passes away of natural causes of pneumonia on March uh, 9th, 1947. As you said, Christopher, in Springfield, Missouri, one of the most infamous apprentice salesmen that ever <laughs> apprenticed. And the thing is, though, you know, he, he was so infamous, but his name was in the paper. Like, people knew this guy, but you can have this acclaimed life of infamy, of crime, and after he died, word didn't even get out for two more years because he was so forgotten. You know, I think his, his brother was quoted in the New York Times as uh, confirming his death, but that wasn't until 1949. And that brother went by the name Emil Lustig, and let us remember that the guy's real name is Robert Miller. A lot of mysteries, a lot of mysteries. A lot of mysteries here, Christopher. And I got to tell you, you know, here on Ridiculous History, we love the story of a good con, a good heist, but we do want to be clear that we're not we're not endorsing this. Please don't start counterfeiting enough money to imbalance the global economy. <laughs> and and despite that, you know, this guy's clearly not a good person by any stretch, right? And perhaps is psychologically compelled to engage in these shenanigans. But even even with all that, even with all the the horrible things he's done, I have this reluctant and sincere admiration for the guy's abilities. Well, I think no one you have admired people's cojones, right? Mm -hmm. Their their wherewithal. Yeah. Um, But I got to say, and and that's the thing. You know, I don't like to to gender something like this when you're talking about cojones. Uh But it it, it does tend to be men who who pull these scams. Um, But I, I would say in the future, you know, there are a lot of really cool female scam artists who could make for some interesting topics. Some fake princesses. That's true. Yeah. Oh, that's true. You're right, Christopher. And also, I would advance if we are if we're having this discussion about cons and gender, I would advance that it is completely possible that we only know about more men because they are less skilled and more likely to be caught. Oh, yeah. So there's there's, I'd buy there's that. possibly that. Well, in fact, it's it's because of one man. There's one man in specific who uh who gives this whole genre of criminal the name. So you know, do you, do you know why it's called a con? Why is it called a con, Christopher? It's a, so con is short for confidence. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to this one guy. In 1849 in New York City, uh, William Thompson was his name. And he had a scam where he would butter people up with, with golden words, with sweet speech. Mm-hmm. And he was able to build up other people's belief in himself so much that he said, I want you to, as a show of confidence in me, Loan me your golden watch because you believe in me so much. Yeah. Because you believe in me so much, loan me your golden watch. I'll go away for – I'll do whatever and then I'll come back. You'll have your watch back. And this man stole hundreds of watches this way. So So, ridiculous. So much so that he became known as the confidence man. He was written about in in newspapers, in the Times – but he became this kind of like folk hero, right? And that's I think that's the thing that captures people's imagination, especially here in the U.S., when there's what's perceived as a victimless crime. There's no bodily harm. People just use their, uh, use their wiles to steal money. Mm-hmm. So the confidence man ends up in prison. And he would give interviews to newspapers as the confidence man. This uh, <laughs> William, William Thompson, the confidence man. And then that became a term for this scammer, for the grifter, the con man. 
That is that is such a wonderful story. I had not heard that. Also, that sounds like a terrible idea for a scam, but I guess it was a different time. I mean, I, there's, yeah, sweet talking in the mid-19th century. It'll get you far. I'm picturing a transatlantic voice. <laughs> As a mark of confidence, give me your golden watch. I'll return presently. I'm going to decline to do this from now on. No more accents. (laughs) No more accents? Okay. All right. But uh, I hope that you do not decline to join us again in the future, Christopher Hasiotis, wherein you and I and Casey and Nolan Spirit will be exploring a very, very strange story about the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, if it's cool with you and uh, if it's cool with the ghost of Noel on the uh, cross-continental divide, I'm going to stick around this week. Is that cool? I, for one, would love it if you do. It's always a delight to have you on the show. And uh, no big spoilers, but Noel may also make an appearance because he is, like me, a big Christopher Hasiotis fan. And like you too, Casey, right? Absolutely. Aww. <laughs> and we hope that you have enjoyed this episode about one of the most legendary con artists who ever lived. What is your favorite story of a heist or a con? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, and we'd especially love to invite you to our Facebook community page, Ridiculous Historians, where you can hang out with your fellow listeners and see some, I don't know, some top-notch historical jokes, honestly. Yeah, uh, jokes aplenty, wisecracking, sarcasm, what else is on there? Clever thoughts, there's some (laughs) clever thoughts, Uh, wordplay, uh, memes. You're on there. Uh, I don't know. That's a good thing. (laughs) But do uh, do check it out. As always, uh, we want to thank our super producer, Casey Pegram. We'd like to thank my trusty co-host, Noel Brown. We'd like to thank Alex Williams, who composed our opening track. And uh, Christopher, we usually thank you on the show, but now I can say it to you directly. Thanks for coming. All of you listening at home, at work, in the car, wherever you are, you can't see it. but, But Ben and I are shaking hands quite vigorously right now. Hey, uh, nice watch. Oh. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com are you still searching for your perfect place to call home well now is the time to buy at fisher homes if you're looking to move in before the end of 2024 may could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.